Do you find yourself saying you're too busy for Bible study? No more excuses. Now there's a way for you to participate in a 30-minute study from your phone, tablet, or computer from anywhere around the world. Aaron Olson of Sandalfeet Ministries teaches lunchtime lessons via Facebook Live every Thursday at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time at facebook.com slash sandalfeet. This podcast is recorded during the Facebook Live event for those who'd like to listen to the teaching again or help out in case you miss a week. So grab your lunch, your Bible, and a notepad before we begin. If you'd like to get Aaron's teaching notes, you can visit sandalfeet.org and click on Books and Bible Studies to see all the available free Bible study material. Hey, thanks for listening today, and we hope you tune in each week for Lunchtime Lessons. Welcome to today's Lunchtime Lessons. So thankful that uh, I'm able to join you today. Thank you for allowing me to be absent last week. My family and I took a road trip, a short, quick, long weekend um, to do a couple of things. And so I am grateful to be back today and looking forward to diving into the book of Titus. Now, last time I said that we were going to go from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy, but um, as is sometimes the case with me, I switched things up. And really, according to historians, the letter of 1 Timothy came, then the letter to Titus about the same time, and then shortly thereafter, the letter to 2 Timothy. So although they appear together in the Bible, um, 1 2 Timothy together and then Titus, I'm going to go a little bit out of order um, in the way they're presented in the Bible, but not necessarily historically how they were presented. So we are going to, for the next today and the next two weeks, be covering the book of Titus. Now, it's a super short book in the Bible. It is only three chapters long, and it is packed full with only 46 verses. Now, unlike 1 Timothy, Paul didn't really um, elaborate on much. I mean, this letter to Titus is all business. It is specific to what Titus needed to accomplish where he was at. Now, the letter to Titus was written to Titus when he was on the island of Crete. Now, we know from the day of Pentecost that there were people from the island of Crete in Jerusalem for the Passover. They were present. Acts 2.11 says that they were present. Now, um, we don't know whether they took that back with them, what they experienced on the day of Pentecost, if they took that filling of the Holy Spirit back to them with the island, to the island of Crete, or whether they were just dispersed throughout other areas and regions within that place. We don't know exactly what happened to those first believers of that early Christian church on the day of Pentecost were, but what we do know is that some time had passed between um, the day of Pentecost and the time that this letter was written to Titus. And so, and, and what we do know is that the church in Crete was fledgling. It was a baby church, if you will. And so uh, they were struggling. Paul and Titus had done some ministry work there on the island of Crete. And now Paul was sending Titus back to finish up what they started. And we know that because of what Paul says in the letter to Titus. Um, so like Crete, like Ephesus, they were all facing struggles. Now, remember, Ephesus was um, a huge metropolis. It was very advanced. And even the church there, uh, when Paul was writing the letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy, that 
church in Ephesus had been established for quite a while. And we can tell that by the things that Paul said to Timothy in those letters. When he went through things, he wasn't just talking about the basic leadership umbrella of the church. He was talking about issues within the church and how to deal with different things. And we see something quite different in the book of Titus. Like I said, it's only three chapters long. It's very succinct. And he basically is telling Titus that, listen, we were there, we presented the gospel, we started the church. But remember when Paul planted churches, he didn't set up leadership. We saw that in Ephesus, um, if you followed along with 1 Timothy. And so he didn't set up leaders. He just kind of went and, and blew through there and, and people's lives were changed and transformed through the gospel. And as a result, people were sharing their faith and gathering together as believers, but there was no established leadership um, or guideline as to what that looked like. And so Paul was sending Titus back to Crete to kind of fix things um, and to appoint some leaders. Now we know from the island of Crete, just like Ephesus, they were both steeped in Greek mythology. And here was the birthplace or the death place, if you will, of, the, uh, of, what, of what mythology knows as the man named Zeus. So he was half God, half man, um, or half animal, half man, and who became God-like, and people worshipped him. And so there were some differences going on there, you know, whether whose authority it was, um, whose authorship, who we should believe, and who had ultimate authority, because many of these Christians were bowing down to the God of Zeus instead of bowing down to God the Creator and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so when we come up here, um, the culture then, of course, just like in Ephesus, the culture in Crete was negatively influencing, influencing the early church and the believers within the early church. They were caught between this is what's going on in society, this is what people are telling me to do, but this is what Paul, or this is what the church now, as believers in Christ, this is now what we're being told to do, and we don't really know which one is right, because for so many years, this is what was right in our culture. And I think for us today, even um, that is becoming more and more prevalent. I think as we sit and we forget about history, or we forget about um, what, our, what our values are, or whom God is, and how he is slowly being removed from things, that we'll forget, well, this is what the world tells us it's okay, and this is how we've been living for this many years. And now all of a sudden, these people are coming in and talking about the gospel, and things are changing. And so people don't always understand um, what is right and what is true. And Paul clears this up in this first chapter to Titus, as well as to us now that we've been receivers of the word. Um, so. What we know too is there might not have been a large pool of people. Remember the church in Crete was a baby church. It was fledgling. And so they, he didn't have, like he might've had in Ephesus, this large pool of people to choose from who were long-term believers. I say long-term relatively speaking, right? Because this was the early church, but that were, were believers who had believed in Christ for a while that were discipling people that were leading people. Now Crete might not have had that. And so Titus is, pool of potential leaders might have been very limited in scope. But nevertheless, Paul gives him very specific instructions on what to look for to appoint a godly leader. And it's very similar to what he told Timothy. And that's really what I love about Paul. Paul is very consistent. 
Now, he softened a bit in his older years, just as he became wiser, um, much like we all do. But he was always very consistent in what he said. He didn't tell Timothy one thing while he told Titus another thing. He didn't cave to the culture. Um, he might have had to lower the standards of what he might have wanted to establish in the early church there. Um, you know, the deep roots and the deep things because of the immediate need. So unlike in Timothy, he doesn't get to talk about how to, what to do with widows and the roles of women and things like that. He's more concerned with, listen, I need to appoint godly elders who are going to be the teachers, who are going to refute the false teachers, who are going to lead this community in truth and to grow other leaders as well and to establish the depths of the church there. But he's very consistent. He says almost virtually the same things that he told Timothy, he says to Titus about what a godly leader looks like, what a godly elder looks like. And for that, I'm thankful. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, this applies in Ephesus and this applies in Crete and this applies you know, in Rome. He doesn't say that. He says, no, no, universally across the board, this is what it looks like to be a godly leader. This is what it looks like to be a godly elder. This is what it looks like to be a Christ follower. This is what truth looks like. This is what non-truth looks like. So he's very consistent in that. So the gospel doesn't change here in the United States and is different in Africa. A godly leader doesn't look different in Africa than he or she looks here in America. And so we need to know that from the outset, that this word, this Bible is for all people, all nations, all times. It doesn't change. Now, the, the mode of delivery may look different. I'm sitting here today on a Facebook Live um, proclaiming the word of the gospel, whereas Paul had to go on foot. I mean, there weren't even cars back then. So he had to go on foot and travel and deliver it by mouth. Um, sometimes they were sent in secret writings at other times in history because people didn't have the ability to speak and communicate, but they wrote down God's word or they handed off pages of the Bible, which still happens today, to others so that they can read it and understand it and hear it. So our method of deliverance, of delivery of the gospel might look different. Our churches today might look different. Uh, the buildings in which we sit, whether we sit in a building or we sit in a home, uh, whether we sit in a church that has a large steeple or a church that's just a square box in a shopping center, um, a church that's in someone's hut or village somewhere around the world, while that may look different throughout time, the gospel message never changes. And that's what's important. And that's what the consistency of Paul does for us as believers in Christ. Not only does God's word give us hope, um, but it gives us confidence in truth. We need to remember that. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into the scripture. Heavenly Father, Lord, just thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your good word. Thank you for the opportunity to be a messenger of the good news. Lord, I'm ever grateful, uh, Lord, to be used by you as a vessel to reach those who, one, need understanding, and two, need to hear your word because they may not have access to it otherwise. Um, Lord, I know that this is a high calling and uh, worthy of, um, of misunderstanding and lots of discussion. But Lord, I'm thankful that you've given me the opportunity to be a mouthpiece for you. I pray, Lord, that anyone who hears these words, Lord, would look to you as the source of their truth, that they would spend time in their Bibles, Lord, and that they would uh, discover who you are, Lord, and that they too would not waver uh, from truth, 
Lord, but that they would uh, abound in love and mercy and grace and peace for all people, um, because that's who you came to save. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me read these chapters in these verses in chapter one. It starts out by saying, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now which is the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I am writing to Titus, my true son, in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior, give you grace and peace. Now that's the first part of the letter. The first part of the letter, just like his other letters, Paul solidifies who he is and who it is that is writing the letter. Now this authority and this authorship is super important, remember, because people could have um, said that Paul didn't write the letter. People could have said that this came from Titus and this was Titus's words and not Paul's words. People respected the Apostle Paul. And so he was saying, no, 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 I am Paul, a slave of God. He's saying basically, I'm a slave. Paul means small and humble and little. That was his Greek Roman name. And so here it is, Paul's speaking of his humility. He's reminding people of his humility. Like, I'm not, this is not coming from me. This is from God, for God, all about God and all about Christ. And so he's also saying that he's an apostle of Christ. And what does that mean to be an apostle? Apostle is both a technical and a general term. Now, technically speaking, the apostle term represented the disciples who were the witnesses to the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's who the apostles were. Remember in scripture, they were called apostles. Well, Paul, just like us, became an apostle later in a different way. So there's a general term apostle, which applies to all of us because we're all sent ones. We're those who are chosen, who go out on behalf of Jesus Christ to share the good news. So he's saying, I'm a slave of God, showing his humility, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ as one who has been called. He's a humble, called, chosen one who was to go out and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And so he needs to go out and do that, and that's exactly what he does. So it says, he says, he's been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen. So he's saying here that, remember, this work I'm doing is not about me. I'm going out in obedience and doing what God has called me to do, to share the good news, is what Paul says. But it's God who chooses them. It's God who chooses whether or not they are grafted into the family of God. And so he has... He's chosen those people. Paul's just to go out into the world, and that's what he did, and that's what we are to do. And he is also to go out and teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. See, the importance here is not that just Paul was obedient that he went out and shared the good news, but also that there would be a method of establishment of how people could learn to live godly lives. God didn't just save us and then leave us here to figure it all out. God has saved us here on earth, but he's also given us a way to know how to live, and that's through his word. So Paul is commanded to go out and teach God's word, to teach the gospel, and also to teach what it means to be godly people and live godly lives. And that's important because 
we could be saved, but if we're not sitting under the teaching of God's word, we have no idea what to do. So whether you're um, sitting in a church listening to a pastor or reading through Bible studies or reading through the Bible on your own time, that is sitting under the teaching of God's word so you know what to do. Lots of people go through life and they say, I have no idea what to do. I have, you know, I have no manual for living. It's false because we have the word of God. It shows us what it means. We can take these next things that he talks about, what it means to be a godly elder, what it means to be as someone who's qualified to be an elder in the church. And we can say, listen, I'm qualified to be an elder in my home. I'm qualified to be an elder in my community. Even if I don't have a pulpit, or even if you don't have a pulpit, you're not a pastor, or you're not in full-time ministry, you have the ability to lead your community, to lead your family. So as we look at these things, yes, they're for the establishment of an elder, the establishment of the early church, but don't forget for one moment that these things are also to define, define each believer, that we are to live blameless lives and be faithful and trustworthy, that we'll talk about in just a moment. So, and what's so important about this truth? He said that the truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, right? We need to know without a shadow of a doubt that we have hope and that we're confident. And why are we confident that we have eternal life? Because God is not a God who can lie. The Bible says it twice, right? He says in 1 Samuel 15, 29, and he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. And then also in Hebrews 6, 18, it says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. So we have confidence, we have hope because God doesn't lie. On the flip side of that, who is the author of lies, the father of lies, and that's Satan himself. It says that in John 8, 44, right, that the audience in Crete would have understood what it meant to, to not lie because they had been called liars for a long time. In 200 BC, Alexandria, he actually called the people of the island of Crete as being people who were always liars. And, and Paul himself mentioned this in Titus uh, 1.12, in verse 12 later on that we read. And so when Paul is writing this letter to Titus, reminding them, listen, my God doesn't lie. We have this confidence and hope in him uh, because he's unchangeable. Um, know that your people in Crete, they're going to know what it means to be a liar because they've been called liars. But God is not a God who lies. And if they're following this culture of theirs, of this following myth mythology, of following Zeus, well, that is a culture of lies, a deception and falsehood. But God is a God of truth and hope and confidence. Um, and then it says, now at just the right time, he's revealed this message which we announced to everyone. So he's saying basically now the, the word of God is being revealed. It is no longer a secret that uh, salvation has come to all. And so now it's been revealed. And now Paul is saying, Paul, I, Paul, have been commanded by God to go out and tell everyone about this. He's announcing it, he says. Um, and that he's been entrusted with this work. Paul takes great care to, to do the work that he's been entrusted with. And so too should we that we should never waver uh, from what we know as being biblically sound, biblically true. Now, sound doctrine is important, and we're gonna learn about this in just a moment, uh, about um, how important that is in building a church. 
So basically here, Paul's saying that, listen, we, we started this work. Uh, we didn't appoint leaders. It's a mess there. Titus, I'm sending you there. I need you to find some leaders. I need you to put them into place because we need the church to grow and to be healthy. And that's the importance of leadership. Paul was not trying to establish a governing body of leaders or laws and regulations per se, um, but he was just saying, listen, we need to put these godly people in place because if these godly people truly believe what they believe, they will live lives that reflect what they believe and what they've received. And that's important in leadership. We have to believe what we believe without a doubt, be confident in hope, and that our lives need to be reflective of the salvation we have received. And if that's the case, if that's true, those churches should flourish. Our lives should flourish. We should be growing and bringing people to the church, to Jesus, because of who we are and what we are and what we represent. And that's not always the case because we see here later in these false teachers what they were, what they were teaching and preaching. So the next verse, we start in verse 5. I left you on the island of Crete as you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. An elder is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. You remember going back here, um, he's talking about a manager of God's household and he talked about that in 1 Timothy 3.5. He talked about if, if, a, if a, an elder can't control his own household, how can he control God's household? So he's just reiterating this same thing once again. Um, and rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home and he must love what is good. Being hospitable back then really meant not about, um, not about amusement or entertainment, but it was a show of love. To be hospitable was to, to welcome strangers and just show them love. And he was saying, listen, if you're an elder, you need to welcome all. You need to be loving. It's not about you. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ. Um, he must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So see, the importance here is that these people, these elders, we needed to find good godly people who loved their wives, who took care of their families, who were devout, who didn't live these worldly-looking lives, but that also believed what they what they what they taught and they needed to be sound in what they believed um, wholesome teaching or sound teaching it occurs in the new testament four times and it actually appears in this letter to titus twice and it basically means um, healthy teaching if there's unhealthy teaching there can also be if there's healthy teaching there will also be unhealthy teaching so he's saying no I need these people, I need these elders to be people who really believe what, they, what they're preaching because I need them to be able to encourage people and to grow people and to counteract those who oppose it, those who are wrong. And so he's saying, listen, you need to do what you need to do because I'm going to tell you what you need to do next. And what he tells the Titus next is that there's a ministry of confrontation. And it's hard. It's also called conflict resolution. But ministry of confrontation is very difficult for lots of people because basically you have to go up against somebody who you believe is falsely teaching, falsely preaching, falsely speaking, doing whatever. And that is really difficult. But he says, 
he connects these, this, this next section with the previous section with the word for. Because he says in the last verse, And show those who oppose it where they are wrong, for there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. This was the same issue that was had popped up in Ephesus, that people were saying that, all right, if you want to say that you're a believer, then you must be circumcised. But that was under the old law, right? The, the old Jewish ways. And so he was saying, no, that's not true. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Um, the circumcision is no longer reflective of God's people. Salvation, the free gift of salvation is... They must be silenced because they are turning a whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. So he's saying here, listen, the problem here is that these false teachers are luring away entire families. Entire families, entire households could be lost forever, future generations, because of these false teachers. And they weren't doing it because they cared about these people. They weren't doing it because they really wanted these people to know Jesus or that they wanted them to come to a saving faith or even that they wanted to build churches and to encourage believers. They were doing it, Paul said, simply for money. So they were giving this them this whole bunch of whatever false doctrine to prosper and profit from it at the harm of many. And Paul was saying, this can't continue, Titus. You've got to get it under control. Even one of their own men, and this is who I talked about before, Alexandria, he was from Crete, said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. So Alexandria had said basically that these people of Crete are just a bunch of worthless people. And, um, and, and this can't continue because the ones who are saved by grace through faith, the people of God's household, they shouldn't be liars and cruel and lazy gluttons. They should be abounding in joy and love and peace filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so then he says, now that was the rebellion of the false teachers. He's saying that these people are malicious. They're rebellious people. They don't want to submit to authority. They're out for their own gain. And then he says, this is true. Now he says, so reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop. They must stop. He's talking about the people who are listening to these false teachers. Okay. He's already talked about this is what a godly leader looks like. This is what they should have, and this is who they should be. Because I need these godly leaders to believe what they believe so that they can counteract what the false teachers are teaching. We've dealt with these two issues. Now we're talking to the people who have heard these false things, he says. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned them from the truth. Paul's saying, you must make sure that these people know what truth is, Titus. You need to tell them. You need to teach them. You need to preach it, and they need to believe it. And then they need to turn. They need to repent. They need to go back and turn around and not follow the myths and the ways that aren't right with God. But they need to repent and return to God and the right ways of living. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. So he's saying, listen, those who are pure, those who are godly, those who believe what they've heard, believe what they believe, trust what they believe, have confidence and hope in God for their salvation. These people are pure and they can discern the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. And he's saying that everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving. 
because their minds are corrupted. So these people who are kind of on the fence, who are maybe lukewarm, who are wishy-washy, who really aren't all in, they can just be told whatever because their minds and their hearts have not been washed pure, white as snow, by the salvation of Christ. Um, they're kind of still in the world, in Christ, in the world. They could go either way on any given Sunday. And he's saying, listen, you need to call them out. You need to make sure that they know that those whose hearts are pure, that's good. Those whose hearts are pure, aren't pure, not so good. Um, because they claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. James says it, right? He says it best um, in the book of James. He said in James 2, 14 to 20, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then, then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So James here is basically saying that you need both. You need faith and good deeds. And this, Paul is saying the same thing here. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. So you can usually flesh out the people, right, that are, that are uh, faith alone <laughs> or works alone. You can't have either one. But what we should be known as, as Christians we should known by our, be known by our faith through our good deeds, through our works, through the way we treat people, through the way we love people, um, through the way we live. Are we living these godly lives? Are we faithful to our spouses? Are we taking care of our children? Are we um, not heavy drinkers or drinkers at all? Um, are we not violent? Are we honest with many? Are we honest with people? Do we fulfill our obligations? Um, our contracts, our deeds? Um, are we hospitable? Are we all of those things? Because Paul is saying that if you are, um, then your hearts are pure and your roots are deep and you're not likely going to be swayed when a false teacher comes through and tries to make something look shiny and pretty, um, not for your benefit, but for their gain. So Paul sets Titus here in Crete in, a, you know, in an island where he had passed through, there's only one other mention of Crete when Paul was on his way to stand trial before Caesar in Acts 27. When he was there, he um, remember he was about to get shipwrecked and they came up and they were trying to take safe harbor in, in a part of Crete, but then they were blown out farther and he ultimately ended up in Malta. But on this little island here, God was concerned about the people there. Uh, and we know that God was concerned about them because Paul had Titus go and set up faith-believing, truth-founded churches with godly leaders. Now, it's not always going to be perfect um, because humans are humans um, and the church ebbs and flows. But what we know that even today, through the work of the Holy Spirit, churches are being planted. People are going out. Um, people are setting up. Um, false teachers are being confronted. Um, People who are not fully committed are being reproved and called out. 
Like, who do you believe? What do you, who do you say God is? Uh, what do you say truth is? Um, what do you say is God word, God's word is? And those are the sorts of things that still will continue throughout time until Jesus returns. And so um, what we see here is that the early churches varied somewhat in that when they were beginning, they were just like we are. We need to find good leaders, strong leaders to set us up for success um, because those are the people who influence their culture. Those are the people that influence their community. If you have a strong, godly, faith-filled believer leading the charge, people are going to follow that truth as opposed to following the untruth of a false teacher. So next week, we'll get into chapter two of Titus, so I hope you'll join me. My notes will be up on sandalfeet.org later this afternoon or sometime tomorrow, and the podcast will also be available if you want to listen to it back in your car or um, some other time when you don't have access to Facebook. But thank you for joining, and we will see you next week. Thank you.